You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. As we get ready to welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, we're going to read today's scripture from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 14. And if you can, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. So good to actually see you guys again. It's been way too long. Before we jump into this fascinating and challenging book, sorry that the PowerPoint wasn't working. It's maybe better that you didn't read along uh, because Ecclesiastes 1 is so challenging and confusing. So before we dive in, will you join me in prayer as we ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what his word has for us. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you are such a good God to us. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us in this world we live in and in the situation in which we find ourselves, which is oftentimes filled with sin and suffering and hardship. We thank you that your word is honest about the hard parts of life, suffering and loss, heartache and heartbreak, joys that that are fleeting. Lord, I pray as we open and begin this journey through Ecclesiastes together, pray that you will give us eyes to see the truths laid forth here for us that are so freeing if we're able to receive them. Lord, you sent your son to set us free. And your word tells us that he who the son sets free will be free indeed. And so I pray that you would free us, free us from just this relentless drive for more, free us from this constantly trying to live up to expectations, free us from this Uh, endless pursuit of gain and help us to be people who can receive life as a gift. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It hasn't always been that way, and I often get a strange look from people uh, when I say that, because Ecclesiastes, it's a book that's really, it's easy to miss. It's short, it's tucked away, right in the middle of the Bible. It's kind of easy just to, to pass over, and it's a book that's easy to dismiss, especially the first time you read it. Uh, at times, you know, the, the author, he just, he sounds a little crazy. You know, when you're reading it, he sounds like a guy who's just tired of life and he's going on a rant. And so at times the book is challenging, it's confusing, but it's very profound. And I think it's, it's a very profound and a very timely book for us and where we find ourselves uh, as a people at this point in history. Um, if you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, I just wanted to read a, a few different verses to kind of help, you know, maybe throw you in the deep end of what we're getting ourselves into with this book. Because at times the author, he will sound like a very, very depressed old man who's given up. Ecclesiastes 7.2, he says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take this to heart. <laughs> Other times... He sounds like a total heretic. You're reading it and you're like, what is this doing in the Bible? Ecclesiastes 10:19. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord, right? Like, what, what is that doing in here? And then Ecclesiastes 5, sometimes it's really profound and you can sit and really sit with one verse and it, it will stretch your mind. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. If you love money, it's never going to love you back. If you love wealth, you're going to be live in a very, very exhausting life. Ecclesiastes, it's, it's a wild book, but more than anything, Ecclesiastes is a profoundly honest book. It's honest about the challenges and trials and absurdities of life. Herman Melville you know, the God-haunted agnostic author of Moby Dick, he called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. And Thomas Wolfe, a great American novelist, references Ecclesiastes in his book, You Can't Go Home Again. And he writes this, of all that I have ever seen or learned, that book seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth, and also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I am not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could only say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and the most profound. And so we're going to spend a few months going through this book, and I want you to know that if you're here and you're a Christian, the lessons that Ecclesiastes teaches, they have the power to deepen your faith, and actually to bring more freedom, to, to allow you to live more into the freedom that Jesus offers us to literally change your life. If you're here and you're a skeptic, if you're here and maybe you're, you're in high school, junior high, and your parents are believers and you're in that place where you feel like you're supposed to be a Christian, you don't know if you are a Christian, you have all of these questions, Ecclesiastes is such a wonderful book for you. Because the author, the teacher here, he has the courage to ask a lot of questions that people don't tend to ask in church. 
he has the courage to say a lot of things that in church would might seem like, well, we don't, we don't really address those things. And he just lays it out. And so as we work through this, it's going to force you to wrestle and ask some big questions. But I also think it'll lead us to a life of freedom, joy, and gift. And so all of that being said, my goal today is really simple. Let's, let's help get, our, get some bearings and, and, and some landmarks around this book. What is this that we're wading into and how do we read Ecclesiastes? Because the book kind of throws you in the deep end. And so starting with verse 1, we learn who it is that's writing it. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who's writing this? Well, traditionally people have understood this to be Solomon. And that might be the case that Solomon is the author of this book. He never identifies himself as Solomon. I don't think it probably is Solomon. I think it was probably someone else. Uh, who was writing from the perspective of Solomon, which is something that was pretty common back in that day. There's a few reasons why, and if you want to talk about it afterwards, I'd love to, to make my case with you. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who the author is. Whoever it is, they are writing with an attempt to try to sound like Solomon. They're kind of writing as one, putting themselves in Solomon's shoes. But what we really need to know about the author comes forth right in the title where we're told this is the words of the teacher. Some translations will have the preacher. Uh, the word actually means one who gathers. And so the author here is someone who gathers a group of people together and talks with them. So it could be like a sermon that he was given. It could be like a classroom. Uh, it could be, you know, like a philosopher gathering people around and giving them a lecture. But you have to understand this. He is a teacher. These aren't the, the aimless meanderings of a bitter old man who's tired with life. The author of Ecclesiastes is a teacher, and he is an amazing teacher. You know, some teachers, they just lecture. It's like you show up. I had a couple of those in college. Like you show up, you get out your notebook, and they just talk for 50 minutes straight. You're like, could you just send us the transcript and save us all a bunch of time? But then you have some teachers. One of mine was my 10th grade geometry teacher. First day of class, he came in and he said, what class is this? And we were supposed to respond. You know, we all mumbled geometry. And he's like, so what am I going to teach you? Geometry? And he said, wrong. I am not here to teach you geometry. I'm here to teach you how to think. Because if you know how to think, geometry is really easy. And he would say that over and over and over again in the class. Well, in the same way, a great teacher, teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's, he's not just trying to tell us some things. He's provoking us. He's asking hard questions, challenging questions, because he wants us to think. He doesn't want us to settle for easy answers or trite little religious sayings. He wants us to wrestle with the great challenges of life and of faith so that we can come out the other side of it changed and growing even deeper in our love for God and the calling he's put on our life. And so the teacher, he's going to provoke. And really, the whole sum of the book can be found in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he lays out his big thesis about life. And he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. 
Some of your translations will have vanity in there. Vanity of vanities. Everything's vanity. Everything is completely vanity. Now, this word that's translated meaningless here or in other translations, vanity, it's the Hebrew word hevel. And we have to talk about this word because it comes up 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's very central to the message. And I never want to cause you to, to doubt the English translations we have, but neither meaningless, I actually think meaningless is a, a, I do not like the way that that's, I do not like that translation of the word hevel. Vanity too, for us, vanity means like someone who's vain and, you know, cares too much about their appearance. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. But we don't have, this is where I have a lot of grace for the translators, we don't really have an English equivalent of the Hebrew word hevel. Um, the, the literal translation of this word would probably be something like smoke. I think that's how the message translates it. Smoke, smoke, everything smoke. Smoke, mist, vapor, breath. And uh, Robert Alter, he's a brilliant scholar in Hebrew. One of the things he says, when you translate this, this word hevel as meaningless or as vanity, you're making, you're making it an abstraction. Whereas in the original language, it was something concrete, something that you could actually see and interact with. And I think the best way to understand it is think about a really cold January morning. You go outside, you know, we're talking 10 degrees, and you exhale, and for, for a moment you can see your breath. That's hevel. It's not meaningless, and it's not vanity, but it's short, it's short-lived, right? You, you see it for a moment and then it's gone. And so one angle, there's a lot of dimensions to this word and what the teacher's trying to say. One angle of, of calling life and everything hevel is he's saying it's fleeting, like it's passing before you know it. And y'all, those of you who are older than me in this room, you tell me that all the time. Enjoy these days while you can, they fly by. Life is fleeting, it goes by so quick. And so in one sense, just like that, that breath you breathe out, where it's there for a second and gone, the, the teacher is saying, so too, life is short. But that's not the only angle. Think about that. When you see your breath, is it real? Yes or no? Yes. Can you grab it? No. And if you try to grab it, what happens? It, it escapes you disappears right before your eyes. So life, he's saying, is not just fleeting. Life at times is elusive. That we can see it and we think we can make sense of it and then something happens and the meaning or the experience kind of changes on us. It's that Ecclesiastes 5.10, it's evasive. You know, he who loves money is never gonna be satisfied with it. You grab it and you get the thing you want. We've all had that, right? That thing that you're like, if only I could get this, and then you get it and you're like, ah, oh, I thought it was gonna be a different experience than it was. I thought I was gonna be more satisfied with that than I was. So it's fleeting, it's, it's elusive and evasive. But it's also unpredictable. You know, every time you breathe that breath out, you got some sense of what it's going to look like, but it's going to take a different shape every time as well. And so, too, the teacher is saying that life, it's unpredictable. In chapter 2, he talks about how hard he toiled for his wealth and possessions, but he knows he will one day die. And so he's thinking about his life, and he's, 
he had this plan, he made all of this money, but then he knows, because he's wise, he knows, I'm going to die, and then what's going to happen to all of the wealth? And he ponders that in Ecclesiastes 2.19. Who knows whether this person that, that you leave the money to will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. Not, not meaningless, but it's heavy. You work hard. You give your life to something. Who's going to get it? What are they going to do with it? Are your kids going to spend the money the way you want them to? You're not going to be there to correct them or scold them. You're going to be dead. So they're just going to have the money. And they might tell you, this, we're going to do exactly what you told us with it. And then they'll go buy a new car or something. You don't know. See, life, it's fleeting. It's elusive at times. And it's really unpredictable. I mean, think of this pandemic. I remember two weeks before the pandemic, all of these plans we had the week before. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, this thing that's coming out of Wuhan and what's going on. And then boom, a year of our life just turned on its head. Completely unpredictable. It's heavily. Now, to defend this position, that's, that's the big premise. Is life is mysterious and it's elusive and it's fleeting. Now, to defend this, that everything is heavily, in verse 3, the teacher gives us a question, and it's one of the greatest questions we can ever ask, and it's the overarching question that drives this entire book. When he says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? This big question that... that the reason he's, he's gone to this idea that life is hevel is because he's really wrestled with this question. What do we gain? When it's all said and done, after all of our labors, all of our efforts, what's the surplus that's left over? What can we point to and say that? That's what I've achieved. And that's what's going to last. And it's almost like... He asks the question, and this is going to be hard, but it's going to be good. Don't leave in the middle, okay? You've got to stay till the end. If you leave in the middle, you'll be so discouraged, but it, it ends well. But he says, what do we gain? While you're thinking on that, let me share some observations. Verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, then the sun sets. And then it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the north or to the south, turns around to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. So the place the streams come from, there they return again. The teacher, he's painting a picture of all of the activity in the natural world. Like the sun, round and round it goes. The wind, round and round it goes. Water, you know, hits the stream, goes to the ocean. The ocean never fills up. Instead, the water ends up back at the top of the stream. It just, it, he's pointing to the endless, repetitive cycles of activity on the earth. And what is the gain of all of those things? I mean, it keeps 
life going and the earth spinning, but, but what is the gain? What's the surplus? And, and what he's doing is he's saying, as you think about that, think about your life. I mean, our lives are filled with seemingly endless cycles. Amen? We've got five little kids. So that means when we wash the dishes, what happens five minutes later? There's more dishes to wash. You get all caught up in the laundry just in time for what? You don't have to get caught up on laundry. You change the diaper. And my kids have been notorious for this. It's like they wait until you change it, and then five minutes later, what's there for you? Another dirty diaper. You cut the grass. Two days later, your wife tells you, it's probably going to rain. You should cut the grass. You pay your bills just in time to pay your bills. Over and over and over again. Time is a flat circle. It just round and round it goes, is what the author, the teacher is saying us, saying to us. And he's saying, and when you think of it all, what do you gain from it? What do you, what do you take out of it all? What's the surplus? What's your cut from it all? I mean, think about it. We all work so hard. We work so hard in school. Why? So we can get a good job. Why do we want to get a good job? Because we want someone good to marry us. And someone good might not marry us if we don't have a great job, especially if we don't know how to work. And so we get married. And marriage, what does that take? A lot of work, right? And then you have kids. What do kids take? A lot of work. So you put all your time into your marriage and your kids, and then you, you get a house, and houses are wonderful, but houses take a lot of work. And you work extra hard so you can get that nicer car that you can drive to work. And then you come home, and you work on the house, and then you run your kids around, and it's all work. It's work, so much work. And then at the end, Build up this retirement portfolio so you can retire, and then what do you do in retirement? You, you work in your golf swing, on your hobby. You work to travel the earth, and then you die, and all of the stuff that you accumulated, if you accumulated stuff, it goes to your kids. I mean, that's the argument he's making. He's, he's zooming out, and he's saying, what's the gain of it all? What do we actually get to take away from all of this? Verse 8, he lays it on the line. He says, all things are wearisome. When you put it like that, it's kind of wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing, but what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already. He's so cynical. No, it was here already. Long ago, it was here before our time. It says, when you think about the endless activity of life, of this earth, and you really put your mind to it, it becomes wearisome to think about. And yet we keep going because we are creatures that, like we have an endless appetite for certain things. The eye never has enough of seeing, and that's why Netflix can do remakes of remakes that you already know the terrible plot line five minutes into the show, but you will watch all ten hours of it. Even though you know how it's going to end and it's not going to be that entertaining. The ear never has enough of hearing. 
we just keep consuming and consuming and consuming. And he says, do you think you're going to get something new? I mean, this is where, you know, I imagine him toking on his pipe as the smoke blows from his pipe heavily. Do you think you're going to learn something new? What do we gain? There's nothing new under the sun. And maybe you're, you think, well, yeah, there is. And sure, in some sense, there are new things, but it doesn't take too long before you learn. You buy a new iPhone, and what happens right after you buy it? A new iPhone gets released. You get caught up on the latest fashion trends just in time for all those clothes to go out of fashion. You live long enough, you learn, you can just put certain clothes away and eventually that style of jean will come back around. Just put it in the shelf. What is the gain? What is the gain? What do we gain from all of our toil? That's the teacher's question, kind of like the kids. Why gain? Why? But why? But why? What do you have to show for all your toil and work under the sun? And here's where, if you want to press what he's saying to the nth degree, and it's going to sound very depressing, but it's, it's true. What do you get? You get marriage. Your marriage might be wonderful, but you're both going to die. And in a few hundred years, no one's going to remember you. Maybe a hundred years. How many of you can name your great-great-grandparents? Kids? They're going to die too. They're not going to live forever. A nice house? That, maybe a hundred years. Start a great company? Sure, eventually it'll tank. Maybe you <laughs> won't be here to see it, so that's good. Build a great nation? Think about it. Think of all the great nations. They've all collapsed and crumbled to the ground. Write a novel? Sure. Eventually end up at a garage sale with a sticker price of five cents. Sing a great song. It'll be forgotten. Name me three songs from the 1700s ago. <laughs> I mean, this is hard. Like, if you actually sit with what he's saying, what he's doing, I mean, it's so provocative. And he's saying, okay, all of this labor, you are so stressed out all of the time. You're all running and you're burning the candle at both ends. And what are you going to gain from it when it's all said and done? What are you going to take away from it? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, it's not about what we gain. It's, it's about the legacy we leave, the dash on our tombstone. And the teacher comes and he says, no, no, no. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. <laughs> you might be remembered for a few decades. Your grandkids will probably love you. Your great-grandkids, you will be a faded memory and stories, and your great-great-grandkids will not know your name. So the question, what do we gain? all of our labor, which we toil under the sun. What's the point of all of this? All of our blood and sweat and tears, all of our anxiety and exhaustion for what? What do we gain? I mean, think about it. If a friend after church today asks you to go to Owensboro on Wednesday, hey, can you go to Owensboro for me on Wednesday? You, you probably respond, Maybe. But, but what do you want me to do there? Why? 
what's the, what's the point? And they said, oh, don't worry about the point. I just want you to go drive around for a few hours and come back. How many of you would go? You have to have a lot of free time. Why would you not go? Because you want to know what the point is. Why am I going? What's the gain? What's the surplus? What's the reason behind all of this? And what the teacher is saying, and he says it in a pretty forceful and provocative way, he's saying, you're willing to ask that question about how you spend your Wednesday afternoon, but you're not willing to ask that question about how you spend the entirety of your life. What is the game? Now, remember, he's not a madman. He's a teacher. He's trying to teach us something. And he gets you a little depressed. But he's really trying to provoke something in us. This is in God's word. It's not meant to lead us to despair. And the answer to this question, what do we gain from all of our toil under the sun? The answer is actually found in the question. What do we gain from all of our labors under the sun? It's another phrase that shows up number of times, 29 times in the book. And when the teacher uses this phrase, when he talks about life under the sun, what he's doing is he's basically saying, let's look at this world and this life and assume that what you see is what you get. The universe is a closed system, and all that matters is that which you can weigh, count, measure, touch, taste, smell, hear, feel, you name it. Only those things that we can observe. If that's all there is, the universe, closed system. I mean, John Lennon wrote a, a hit song, right? Imagine, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, up above us, only sky. And the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, I've done it, I've imagined it. If this universe, this world is just one big closed system, then there is no gain and everything is ultimately meaningless. We are like ants on a log that's floating down a river that one day is going to go over a waterfall and all of our activity is going to amount to nothing. So what's the hope? Well, the hope... The hope is that there's life beyond the sun. The hope is that there's meaning beyond this life. The hope is that the, the rest of the Bible tells us about a God who has broke through into this universe that often feels closed. And he has woven a story of redemption from this life in this world that so often feels like heaven. But Ecclesiastes doesn't tell you that. It's written before Jesus. And I would say that's actually not the author's goal. Ecclesiastes, it asks the question that the rest of the Bible answers. It asks one big question, the rest of the Bible gives an answer to it. And this is what makes Ecclesiastes so different. You know, when we think of the Bible, the Bible is a book of divine revelation. Okay, so it's God peeling back the curtain and saying, do you want to know how I've been at work throughout history, even when it seems like I'm not there? And so it tells us stories of people that God has called and promises he's made and wonderful works that he's done. And it, it pulls back the curtain. Ecclesiastes, 
Unlike the rest of the Bible, which is divine revelation, Ecclesiastes is just a book of human observation. There's nothing in here that you need God to give you in a sense. I mean, don't take that too far. Don't hear that the wrong way. But it's just a book of observations. But what I find so wonderful is that our God said, you know what, I want to include that one in my word too. Because I want you to know that I get how hard life is and how confusing and how frustrating. And I want you to know I'm a God who can handle those questions. And so if you're sitting here saying, wondering, does life have any meaning? And there's a book in the Bible that asks that exact same question. If you're someone who has been striving and attaining and climbing the ladder and you feel unsatisfied, Ecclesiastes says, yeah, that's the common human experience. You thought that house, that car, that promotion, that relationship, that whatever, you thought that was going to be the thing that, you know, really, really changed your life and everything was going to be wonderful after that. Ecclesiastes is saying, don't, don't, don't live like that. There's a better way. And so there are times as we're going through this book, it's going to be really hard. Uh, we do have an answer. There is life beyond the sun. But if you run to the answer too quickly, you really miss the, the lesson and I think you miss the wisdom. You know, Jesus said the truth will set you free and David Foster Wallace added this little addendum, but not until it's done with you. And I think Ecclesiastes is one of these books, like it will set you free, but it, it's got to do its work on you first. And so three hopes for me for this series Three hopes that I have for all of us. One, I hope that we as a community in our study of this book will grow in wisdom. Wisdom is a forgotten virtue and trait in the church often. And we need, I mean, more than ever, we need wise Christians. We need to be wise people to navigate this world that's changing so rapidly. Now, Part of growing in wisdom, and really the essence of wisdom, is knowing how to navigate all that's gray in life. You know, you have some things in the Bible that are black and white, you have an awful lot of things that are gray. Who should I marry? What should my job be? Like, where should I live? There's a lot of things that you're like, well, the Bible doesn't, I wish you could just turn and like, here's your, find your name and here you go, here's all the things, but it doesn't. How do you love your kids when they're really difficult? Do you bring the hammer down or do you show even more grace? What do you, sometimes it's one, maybe the other, I don't know. Well, this is a book that wants us to grow and helps us grow in wisdom. And it, part of growing and becoming wise is losing some of the unhealthy spiritual naivete, is what I would call it. So I think a lot of people a lot of Christians think that if we live a life of obedience, doing what God expects of us, life's going to go pretty well for us. You know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. I don't want to denigrate that. That's true. I, I think, generally speaking, yeah, when you honor God with your life, life tends to go better. But... Ecclesiastes comes along and it says, but wait a second, that's not always true. Proverbs aren't always 
correct. Proverbs aren't promises. You live long enough, you find that sometimes you honor and obey God and life doesn't get easier, it gets harder. Sometimes you do the right thing and instead of being rewarded, you suffer, you're mistreated, you're, ma you're maligned. You guys know what I'm talking about? You experienced it? If you haven't, oh, enjoy your life as it is right now. Yeah. While you can. But eventually something happens and you have this idea of who God is and how life's going to go, and it's all wonderful. And then something happens, and your faith crashes upon the rocks of reality. And when that happens, it's hard. You know, the, the people you looked up to, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was the people who led you to faith, they get a divorce, and you're thinking, what? They were never going to get divorced. Friendships crumble, relationships struggle, loss, death happens. I remember when I was in high school, we lost a classmate a year from seventh grade on until my senior year. And then we didn't lose a classmate, we lost a teacher. She's 29 years old, deeply loved Jesus, loved the students, everyone loved her. Like she was just, she was the best. She died in the most freak, tragic accident. And for all of us who were young in our faith and on fire for Jesus, man, that threw a stick in the spokes. Wait a second. See, Ecclesiastes, I told you, a teacher has the guts to say things that religious people are often afraid to say. And one of the things he's going to say is that life under the sun is hevel. It's fleeting. It's elusive. It's evasive. And we're not always going to be able to grasp what God is up to at any given moment or in any given situation. It's unpredictable. Life is not just unpredictable. It's unfair. And we're going to look and we're going to wrestle. I mean, how many of you, you have things like that in your life right now, don't you? You're like, God, what's going on here? Jesus, what are you doing in this? See, in Ecclesiastes, it humbles us. And in doing so, it makes us wise. Because the first step in growing in wisdom is fear of the Lord. And the way you grow to fear the Lord is when you stop thinking you have it all figured out. It humbles us, puts us in a posture of receiving, not asserting so much. So grow in wisdom. The quick application for you, I want you to get in this book, read it once a week, if not more. It takes you 15, 20 minutes. It'll be a lot easier to preach if you, you're already familiar with some of the context. Number two, this book will grow us in faith. One author, he writes this, within the larger context of the Bible, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is essentially a kind of negative theologian, asking questions that can be answered only by a future revelation of God. And clearing the road for this revelation by smashing any and all false hopes to pieces. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's night before Christmas. He shows us human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. This is a book 
Man, when you actually sit with it, it drives you to Jesus, not because he offers us some kind of eternal fire insurance, but because that future revelation that Solomon or whoever wrote this book didn't have, we have it. And we know that there actually is life beyond the sun. And we know that life is filled with all sorts of tremendous gains. We know that Jesus has made tremendous promises to us. And that our life is not meaningless, even though it often feels that way. But in Christ, he infuses meaning into everything that we do because we know the promises he's made. He's going to give us new bodies. He's going to renew our world. And nothing done in his name will ever be wasted. Now, we run to Jesus. We grow in our faith as we study this book. Because we know the promises he's made, but also we know that he's the one who can really help us make sense of this world that's so confusing and even absurd. Absurd. Now, Jesus, it's, it's not an exaggeration, I don't say this tritely, Jesus entered into the hevel of human existence. The fleetingness, the, the elusiveness, the unpredictability, the loss. He entered into the hevel of human existence, took it into himself on the cross. And he's promised that the day is coming where all that is hevel will be gone and everything will be permanent and good and beautiful. That's probably not happening today. And so it's a book that draws us near to Jesus, keeps us near him. And it teaches us to count everything as a loss for the gain, the gain of knowing him. And then the third, last, and I'm just gonna tease this, we'll get into it more next week. This is a book, and I know this might sound crazy to you, but this is a book that really frees you to enjoy your life. And I want, I want us to be filled with a little bit more joy. We have, we're too buttoned up at times as a church. We're very serious. You know, which is good, that's fine. But like, this is a book that really frees you to enjoy your life. When you realize that life as it is while we're waiting for Jesus to return, it's, it's hevel. It can be disorienting, but it can be incredibly freeing because instead of striving for endless gain of earthly things, you can actually begin to receive life for what it is, which is a gift. It's a common refrain in the book Ecclesiastes 2.24. He says this again and again. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. This book can set you free from anxiously striving for more. And it can, can lead you to this freedom of where, you, where all that you have, it's a gift. And you just receive it. You know what that's like? I mean, like you cut the grass and then you sit down on your deck and you... You drink cold lemonade. Do you know the joy? Or is it just all toil? Too? But, but think about that moment. It's like, ah, the grass looks good. And the lemonade is refreshing and tastes great. And it smells wonderful out here. And how often do we miss those moments because we got to gain something? And this is a book that's saying, no, life is about receiving. Life is a gift. It's not about gain. And as we think about that, what a wonderful tie into the Lord's table. 
where we remember that at the essence of our faith, it's not about what we're giving to God. It's that God himself entered into our world and gave us his body that was broken for our sins and his blood that was poured out for us. And when we celebrate communion, what we are doing as God's people is we are remembering Life is a gift. It's not about gain. It's about receiving and going from there and living in the freedom and grace that Jesus offers. Let's pray to I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.